Well, good morning. How are you guys today? A happy Father's Day to all fathers. Uh, we have a gift for one lucky father today. We have a Lowe's gift card for $100 because as guys, we always need more tools, right? So did every father get a ticket when you came in this morning? Is there any father who did not get a ticket? If you get, didn't get a ticket, will you raise your hand so we can make sure you get a ticket? Everybody get, else got one? Everybody got one? All right. So can we bring up the bucket and we'll draw? Everybody get one? Make sure you put mine on top. Yeah. So I can make sure I win. All right, here we go. All right, everybody have their ticket? Uh, all right, four, three, two, nine, seven, three. Four, three, two, nine, seven, three. Who won? Here we go. Congrat- no, I trust you. I believe you. Congratulations. Right. Well, we just want to say thank you to all fathers. I wish we could give a card to every father because I think uh, fathers deserve it. I mean, being a father is a really tough job. And I don't mean fathering a child because that's the easy part. I'm talking about being a father, being the provider Uh, for our family, being the protector, being the mentor to our kids, being the one who shows our kids how to know and love God, being the ones that show our sons what it means to be a man, being the one that shows our daughters what it means for a man to love them in the right way and how to treat them correctly, being the fathers that God has called us to be. See, the role of a father in the life of his children is so important. I mean, it's crucial that we develop a deep intimacy with our children because that relationship is really the key to their success because without that relationship, life for them becomes very difficult. Statistically, if you look at the statistics of kids that go through fatherless homes, 63% of them, uh, 63% of all youth suicides are from kids from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth who are in prison right now, 85% of them grew up in a fatherless home. And fatherless daughters are 92% more likely to divorce. And there are a hundred more statistics that prove how devastating fatherlessness can be. Fathers play such a pivotal role throughout a child's life. And without that intimate, loving relationship of a father, children often grow up not even knowing who they are. And they struggle to go through life. And they're unprepared for the trials of this world. And they're lost without direction. And they're unfilled and without, without purpose. And as important as the relationship is between fathers and their children, 
even more important and more impactful is the intimate relationship that we all have with our Heavenly Father. So as we continue today in our series about parables, we're going to be looking at a story that Jesus tells about the amazing intimate relationship that we all can have with God, who is the picture of our perfect, loving Father. And the story is in Luke 11, so if you have a Bible, you can start turning there now. But before we actually get into the parable, we need to back up a little bit, a few verses, to get some background information. So we're going to start in, in the very first verse of chapter 11. And it says this, it says, Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, this isn't the first time that his disciples have seen Jesus pray. I mean, the Gospels show that Jesus would often get up early in the morning and, and talk with his Father. And they showed that frequently, frequently at night, he would go off to a lonely place like the Mount of Olives, and he would pray at night as well. And so his disciples, who had been with him day and night for quite a long time during this point in Luke, had witnessed the importance of prayer in Jesus' life. And during those times of prayer, his disciples had come to recognize prayer as a source of power in his life. I mean, they were seeing the strength and power that Jesus drew from his prayer life. But it was, just, it was more than that. See, they saw an intimate relationship that Jesus had with God through his prayer life. And they saw something very desirable about that. Because this is one of the few occasions where the disciples actually ask Jesus to be taught something. So Jesus teaches them how to pray. In verse 2, Jesus said, This is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't lead us, don't let us yield to temptation. Now this is probably a prayer that we've all heard before. And it's worded a little bit different in the version of Matthew, the, the uh, Lord who art in heaven version. But it's still the Lord's prayer. Now what Jesus is teaching them here is probably vastly different from anything they've experienced before. Because even though the Old Testament and, the, and their rabbinical tradition taught them a lot of principles about prayer, a number of things had corrupted the Jewish prayer life. I mean, for one thing, prayer had become so ritualized, the wordings and the forms of their prayer were set, and they were simply repeated or read from, or, or repeated from memory or just read out loud. Prayers were spoken with almost no attention to what was being said. They were routine, they were mechanical, and they were hypocritical. And Jesus even warns his disciples in Matthew not to pray the way the hypocrites pray. So something had gone wrong with prayer. And by Jesus' day, most Jews had forgotten the teachings of Scripture and even the sound biblical teachings of their tradition. And most of them just didn't know how to pray. And Jesus comes along, and he brings them back to the heart and purpose of prayer. And it was a radical change for them in a number of different ways. First being just the simplicity of it. Another thing that corrupted the Jewish prayer life was the development of prescribed prayers. They had prayers for every object and every occasion. There were prayers for everything. I mean, there were prayers for light, prayers for darkness, prayers for fire, rain, the new moon, traveling, 
good news, bad news, prayers before you go to the bathroom, prayers after you go to the bathroom, prayers before washing your hands, prayers after washing your hands. I mean, you get the point. They had a prayer for everything. But Jesus didn't put any of those conditions on prayer. He doesn't tell them they have to pray at any specific time or at any specific place or in any specific situation. What he's telling them is prayer is more than just reciting some words at a prescribed time or place. It's much more than that. And I think, I think we have some of those same problems today. See, we often get confused about where or how we're supposed to pray. We get stuck into thinking that prayer only happens in church or at specific times during the day. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with praying in church or setting aside this uh, uh, time of the day to pray, but it's not the only way that we can pray. See, for me, driving in the car by myself is where I spend most of my time praying to God. Now, I know all the people that sit at the lights and look at me think I'm crazy because they think I'm talking to myself, but I don't care what they think because some of my best times with God are when I'm driving in the car alone. And see, we also think that when we pray that we have to have this great eloquence, a lot of fancy words. I'm often amazed at the prayer language of some Christians. I mean, it's almost like a foreign language to me. It's just so bizarre. I mean, it's like the guy that was in the video. I mean, it's a crazy way to pray. And no wonder people are afraid to pray in a public setting if they think performance is the standard of prayer. See, the way that you pray doesn't have to be different than any other normal conversation that you have with someone else. Because that's what it is. It's a conversation. A conversation with God. So it's okay to speak to him like you would speak to anybody else. And Jesus was trying to teach his disciples the same thing. He was trying to show them that prayer is not just something that you do at a certain time or place or for a specific thing. What he was saying was any place, any time, any circumstance, prayer is appropriate. He wanted them to see that prayer was to be a total way of life an open and constant communion with God. And that was another radical change for them. Because see, when Jesus starts his prayer with Father, it was with an intimacy that the disciples did not know that they could have with God. See, the concept of God as Father was not unknown to them. Actually, faithful Jews knew God as Father in several ways. They saw him as the Father of Israel, the nation that he chose to be his special people. Isaiah 64 says... It says, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. So God as Father was not a new thing to them. But it was used very sparingly in the Old Testament and hardly at all in the rabbinical teachings. As a matter of fact, God is only referred to as Father in the Old Testament 14 times. But Jesus refers to God as Father more than 60 times in the Gospels. And he always referred to him as Father in his prayers. Now, many translations of Jesus' use of the word Father come from the Greek word pater, which means Father, but it's more like a formal uh, benediction. It, it's, it's more like respected Father. But Jesus spoke Aramaic, and some scholars believe that a better translation would be the Aramaic word Abba, 
Now, Abba was more informal, but it inferred greater intimacy because Abba is translated as daddy in English. And so this was a radically different idea for his disciples. I mean, most Jews wouldn't even have thought in those terms. They saw God as a father only as a remote, distant, faded figure who once guided their ancestors. This idea of an approachable, intimate, daddy kind of a relationship, it was just foreign to them. So Jesus further explains it to them in a parable. And he says this. He says, Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. And you say to him, A friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, Don't bother me. The door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. And Jesus says, but I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of his shameless persistence. Now, to understand this parable a little bit more, let me give you a little bit of cultural context. First of all, you have to understand that in the first century, food was not readily available. They didn't have the McDonald's 24-hour drive through So when you made bread... You made enough bread for the day. And you, usually had, you rarely had any left over. And second, their culture held hospitality in the highest regard. I mean, it was almost a duty to them. A visitor was to be welcomed and cared for no matter what hour he arrived. So when the man with the late visitor goes to his friend and makes the request for bread, his friend understands the need that he has. But his friend inside the house initially refuses that request. Friendship alone was not sufficient enough reason to upset the whole household. And Jesus is saying, can you imagine a friend who would react in such a way? Well, ultimately, the reluctant friend gets up and he gives his neighbor what he needs, but for only one reason, and that's the persistence of the man making the request. Now, this is a parable of contrast. Jesus is not comparing God to a sleepy, selfish, angry neighbor. He's contrasting the two of them. And he's telling his disciples that if a neighbor who can, on the basis of friendship and social etiquette, get out of bed and be persuaded to meet the needs of a friend, how much more will your Father in Heaven, who loves you so deeply, meet the needs of his own children? So he's saying to them, God is not only accessible, but he's willing and eager to meet your needs. God is not the distant father you think he is. He's not the unapproachable father you think he is. Be bold in coming to him with your requests. Then he clarifies more in verses 9 and 10. And he says, And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus is saying, listen, if I haven't made it clear yet, let me put it to you this way. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Or in other words, not only am I telling you to be bold, but be persistent in coming to God. But he's not telling his disciples that because God is reluctant to hear their prayers or reluctant to meet their needs. In James chapter 1, 
It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So God isn't saying, okay, you've prayed this six times now, I guess I'm going to finally grant your request. It isn't that at all. And it isn't that God is just this genie in a bottle, even though we sometimes treat him that way. I mean, when Jesus says that he who asks will receive, this is not a blank check that we can present to God. Name it and claim it is not in the Bible, and it's not what Jesus teaches. Actually, in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, thy will be done. It's the same thing that he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to his death. He says, God, not my will, but thy will be done. See, our, our requests to God have to be in context of his will, not just a list of things that we want from God. In James chapter 4, it says this. It says, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You don't, want, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. See, if our prayers are full of selfish motives and gain, God is not going to answer them. See, our prayers have to be in line with what God's will is for our lives. Look at how 1 John says. 1 John says, there's one thing we can be sure of when we come to God in prayer. If we ask anything in keeping with what he wants, he hears us. And if we know that God hears what we ask for, we know that we have it. So we have to be praying in the context of God's will. But what happens when we ask for good things, like finding a job, or finding a spouse, or even more serious, like the healing of a loved one? What about when we pray for those things that we think are in God's will, but we don't get an answer for? I mean, what then? Well, I think you have to look at it in a couple of ways. First, I think you have to make sure that you are using all the things that God has already given you. I mean, even if we don't know what his complete will is for us, we should be doing what we already know. I mean, if we're asking God to help us find a job, then we should be looking for our job ourselves while we wait his guidance and his provision. I mean, if we're out of food, we should be trying to earn money to buy food if we can. If we're in need of peace and understanding, then we should be seeking his word while we wait for clarity. If we're looking for healing, then we should be using all of modern medicine that God has given man. See, I think it's foolish of me to ask God to provide a way for me to pay for my bills and then just wait for money to drop out of the sky. I mean, God wants to provide for me, but he also wants me to use those skills and resources and connections that he's already given to me. See, that's why I think Jesus says, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's not a lack of faith. Actually, I think it's a lack of faith when we aren't using everything that God has given us. But then there are those times when we do all that we know to do, but we still seem like we have no answer from God. I mean, I could understand praying for selfish things and not getting them. I can also understand not getting something I ask for because God wants me to use what I already have. I understand that. 
What's hard for me to understand is God not answering a prayer that from all the ways that I can look at it seems like it would be a good thing, like healing a sick child or bringing the right person to somebody who desperately desires marriage or allowing a couple who wants desperately to have a family to get pregnant. See, when Ashley and I were first married, we both knew right away that we wanted kids. But for whatever reason, Ashley never became pregnant. So after about a year of trying, we went to a fertility specialist to do some tests. And the tests came back for both of us, and they were fine. The doctors could find no reason why we should not be able to have kids. But we just never could conceive. So we started a fertility treatment, and we did everything up to in vitro. And the reason we didn't do in vitro was just because it cost way too much and we couldn't afford it. But try as we might, it just didn't happen. Now, know that the whole time, Ashley and I, we are desperately praying to God to allow her to get pregnant. I mean, weeks of prayer, months of prayer, years of prayer. And it never happened. It never happened. And I have to tell you, even now, I struggle with it. I do. I don't understand why God would not grant this request. How could us having a child not be in his will? I don't know. I really don't. But it's in these times that I just have to trust that God, my Father, loves me And he wants what's best for his child. Look at verse 11 as Jesus Jesus finishes the parable. He says, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do they give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And what Jesus is saying is that if good fathers here on this earth, fathers who make mistakes, fathers who are broken, full of sin, if they do what is best for their own children, then how much more will God, our perfect father, do what is right for his children that he loves so dearly? See, sometimes we're asking God for a snake, but we think we're asking for a fish. But God gives us a fish instead of the snake. And sometimes it's hard for us to have that understanding, mostly just because we don't have the perspective that God has. I mean, at the moment, we are so sure that it's a fish we're asking for and that it's right for us. But God has a much bigger perspective, and he's looking at a much bigger picture. See, for Ashley and I, because she never got pregnant, we began to explore the possibility of adoption. And through a number of miracles, which is a long story, more than I have time to share with you today, God brought Alex into our lives. And we've had him since the day he was born. Ashley was actually in the delivery room, and she was the very first person to hold him. The very first one. So you see, he is our son. He doesn't have the same DNA, But in every other way, Alex is our boy. And looking back with a newer perspective, I wouldn't change any of it. 
I wouldn't change any of it for anything in the world. See, God knew what he was doing. Now, we still don't understand why we didn't have any more children, either through pregnancy or another adoption, because we explored both of those possibilities for a number of years. And we might not ever know in this life why. And again, it's in those moments when we just have to trust that God knows what is best and that he loves us deeply and that he's doing what is best for his children. I think that's why Jesus says that God will give us the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is really essential in this communion that we have with God. I mean, it is through the Holy Spirit that God often communicates with us. And it's also through the Holy Spirit that we communicate with God. Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, when we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. I mean, the Holy Spirit is what gives us peace when we don't understand. The Holy Spirit is who helps us discern what God's will is for our lives. I believe that's the ultimate point that Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples. I mean, they saw the power of Jesus' prayer life, but ultimately Jesus is telling them the source of spiritual power is the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, communion with God is impossible. I mean, God wants you to come to him with any and all concerns. Not because he needs to know what they are. He already knows what you need way better than you do. And God already knows what's best for you, and he's going to do that because you are his child. And even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. But that begs a question for me. So why pray at all? I mean, if God is going to do his will anyways, and he already knows what we need, why pray? God doesn't need us to pray to him, so why does he want us to do it? Well, there are many benefits to prayer, but ultimately, I believe God desires us to pray because he knows what prayer will do for us. See, we pray not for God's benefit, but for our own. That's why I think when Jesus is telling them, to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, it's because that he knows that prayer develops intimacy with God. And our greatest need is God. Hear me when I say this. Our greatest need is God, not the answer to all our prayers. See, prayer links us with God in the right way, and it puts us in dialogue with him, Not praying is a lot like getting married, saying I do, and then never saying another word to your spouse. See, there can be no development of a deeper connection without taking the time to talk to each other. When we pray, we receive the gift of God himself. I mean, prayer is communion with God. He wants us to know him. And as we grow in prayer, we discover that prayer is more than simply asking God for things. A selfish means to an end. Prayer is not an attempt to force the hand of God, but it's an act of submission to him with the understanding that God's answers 
are far wiser than our requests. See, prayer is to impress us with God, not to impress God with us or our needs. If we never gain anything from prayer but the opportunity to have intimacy with God, then it's all worth it. See, I know this is hard to understand, especially when we live in a world where many people grow up with human fathers they never knew, never were close to, or never got along with. It's hard to trust a heavenly father we don't see when the earthly one we had is absent, distant, or cruel. Believe me, I know it's hard. Being one who knows the pain of being abandoned by his father. But I also know this. I know that God is a perfect father. And he fills in all of the gaps. For me personally, I can't imagine life without praying and talking to God. I can't imagine it. I mean, God has become the father that I never had here on this earth. He has shown me what it means to be a man. He has shown me how to love my wife, how to raise my son. He's the one person that I go to for advice and wisdom. He's the one person that walks through all of life with me, holding me when I'm scared, comforting me when I'm in pain, encouraging me when I'm down, gently guiding me back to the path when I get off of the path. He gives me peace in a life that is full of storms. He really is my father in more ways than I can say. And I love to know that he delights in me, his child. And that kind of relationship, that intimate, deep relationship between a father and his child can only come through the intimacy of prayer. And that's what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. So as we close today, I'm going to ask Brian to come up. I want us to close in prayer, but I want us to do it a little bit different today. What I'd like for us to do is we're going to close by saying the Lord's Prayer together. But we're going to use the longer version that's in Matthew. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say each phrase of the prayer. And then you're going to repeat that phrase as a group. And then we're going to pause for a minute. And I want you to reflect on that phrase that we just said. And Brian's going to, he's going to lead your thoughts a little bit. Okay? So what we're going to do is I'm going to say a phrase of the prayer. You're going to repeat it. We're going to pause as Brian leads us in some meditative thoughts. Everybody understand? Good? All right. Let's close our eyes, bow our head, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Just with your eyes closed, just take a moment to think what that means. Our Father. But to yourself say, my Father. And maybe say it the way Jesus would have said it. My Daddy, my Papa, my Dad. In the most intimate ways. He's not like your earthly father, whether you had a good or a bad father. He's your perfect, heavenly Abba daddy and you can run to him and sit on his lap and feel his embrace hallowed be your name think of the holiness of God 
He's completely outside of time. He's outside of the universe. Time cannot contain him. And yet he made everything. He's the creator of all things, the distant planets, the universes. He created all things. The smallest of details, the human eye, a flower, the rock formations. History is in his hands. And he is set apart and completely holy and other. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Think of the brokenness in your own life. Think of the brokenness of those around you in the world. We are desperate for a Savior and a Redeemer. It says one day He will wipe every tear away. That His kingdom is coming in power. When evil will now prevail. When sin will no longer be the master of this world. For He is the true master. Give us this day our daily bread. Maybe you've forgotten all that God provides you because you're caught up in what you don't have. Think about your family. Think about the food on your table, the roof over your head. Maybe just thank Him right now to yourself, not out loud for all that he provides for you. And forgive us our debts. In Christ you are free. Sin is no longer your master. Maybe your feet are entangled in sin. Know that you're free and just ask forgiveness. Your Heavenly Father freely forgives you as far as from east and the west as He cast away our sins and remembers them no more. As we also have forgiven our debtors, who do you need to forgive? Maybe you need to go to them and ask forgiveness. Or maybe you need to ask God to help you forgive because that can be hard. And He's willing to help you. He's willing to go on that journey with you. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is it for you? What temptations? Because there will be many in this life. Jesus said in this life, there will be trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Let him be the one that guides your feet. Let him be the one that takes you on the journey. Follow Christ. Follow Jesus. Amen.